Charles Thompson, and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And in this episode, we're going to be taking, um, actually, again, like um, taking a look at something actually quite recent, uh, which is becoming a bit of a habit of ours. Um, <laughs> we'll be looking at um, an issue of Notes from Below, uh, their second issue titled Technology and the Worker, um, which kind of like... Uh, it's a collection of essays that center around these kind of notions of like how technology and the workplace kind of intersect, um, which is right up our alley, of course. But yeah, for a bit of background, uh, Notes from Below is an online publication uh, that you can find at notesfrombelow.org. Um, and reading from their about page, Notes from Below is the publication of the Class Inquiry Group, an organization of militants committed to socialism, by which we mean the self-emancipation of the working class from capitalism and the state. And yeah, this is a really cool collection of essays. Um, there's there's quite a lot of them in there, and I definitely recommend the listener check them out. Uh, but we're going to be looking at three in particular. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, prospects for organizing the tech industry, bringing back the Lucas plan, and the future of work, automation, and the left. Um, I think it's this is quite good stuff, and I'm really encouraged to see... A publication dedicating an entire issue to like looking at all these kinds of problems. Um, yeah, and I, I like the, the the format that they have here uh, because it's pretty easy to just uh, you know load uh, one of these articles up in your Kindle or your uh, Firefox reader uh, or whatever. Those is usually how I read them, um, and you know just spend like fifteen to twenty minutes reading them, and it's. It's generally written in such a way that it's not like uh, overly academic. Um, it's more of sort of like a magazine style uh, of writing, like a kind of sh uh, short form essay, um, and pretty easy, pretty easy read with a lot of different broad topics covered. Yeah, I liked that about it definitely. That it's um, um, it's like I love the name, like notes from below, and it does sound like it should be a really hardcore ultra left journal. Um, but no, it is it is very very approachable material. Like um, this is this is really really good stuff. Um, it's something as a worker that I can actually read on a regular basis and not feel stressed out about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, like my, my days are spent shuffling bits of JavaScript and CSS around. Like, my brain's kind of deteriorated by the end of the day. And, like, <laughs> yeah. um, not really, all, I'm not always in the mood for hardcore reading, like, um, like, like, our, like most of our homework. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is quite a bit more palatable. Um, yes. No, it's fantastic. Yeah, and like, um, there's a bit of there. There are general themes running through all the pieces, um, and specifically the three we've picked. But um, yeah, we'll get to those as we as we talk through them. Um, I suppose yeah, if we kick off with um, prospects for organizing the tech industry, um, which is I think a really interesting essay in that it kind of like posits that um, this like tech industry, you know, in inverted commas, is kind of seen as quite homogenous and consisting of like uh 20 something CSS gurus um you know in in silicon valley and so on i mean we can all kind of bring to mind um an image of 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 what that is but it's actually like yeah you know, i've i've been to vancouver yale town i know what that <laughs> looks like <laughs> yeah right <laughs> but um but kind of contrary to that like it's it's actually quite like diverse right like it's not not as homogenous as you think and like uh, for, on the first kind of level, like it's actually made up of like different kinds of workers. You have like your 
uh, like a, a large stratum of service workers at the bottom, right, that are like um, underpaid and, and definitely underappreciated that uh, keep the whole infrastructure of these tech campuses running. Um, you have like, but even within the sort of inner core, then you have like the underappreciated sort of support workers, like your sort of, um, you know, uh, admin staff and receptionists and so on. And then even within the core of technologists, you have the, the lower tiers of like testers and designers and like project managers before finally getting to like the coders and like the senior engineers and then to the the C-level executives and so on. Yeah, and even the coders, a lot of them are working on a temp on a temp basis, right? Yeah, yeah, like a like a contracting basis, which radically kind of changes their relation to the workplace, right? Um, and also, all, as we'll get to in this article, like it alters their relation to like the possibility of organizing. Um, and like a kind of a bit of a spoiler for the end of the article, the kind of like idea here is that. Um, when we're faced with this kind of question of like, how do you organize the tech industry? Um, like people kind of jump to like, well, how do you, how do you organize programmers? Like, and, and then, you know, programmers are this kind of like petty bourgeois kind of class that are like quite comfortable and it's like, oh, that'd be really hard to organize. But contrary to all that, actually, we should be organizing from the bottom, like beginning with service workers and like the service workers that like service the tech campuses and the kind of buildings that these companies are situated in, um, and go up from there, like building solidarity at every level, which I think is a really cool idea. And like, kind of, like it, it sort of, you know, made that click into place for me. That like, I, I had been stuck on that kind of notion that that problem of like, how do how do you organize uh, programmers? You know? Yeah, because you know, uh, for someone who is in uh, that kind of um, petty bourgeois mentality, uh, they they you know, which is to say, someone who is has a little bit of capital to their name um, and uh, can see themselves either as a worker or as a capitalist, right? They're, they're this transition class. Um, for somebody like that, they look at capital and they see the institutional power of the owners and the managers. Um, and they look at workers um, and they they see the the weakness of the working class, right? So, in a sense, if you can build up the strength of the workers, um, they may start to to see the advantage of of having solidarity with workers um, instead of being subservient to capital, right? Um, it becomes a more more attractive proposition. Um, yeah, definitely. And like there's there's kind of a notion here of like this kind of um solidarity and organization being contagious, I suppose. That like um the if you start from service workers who um are you you know usually kind of the worst off amongst this sort of like uh milieu, um, but are also kind of like the closest to industries or kind of like uh workforces that were traditionally unionized or organized. Um you start from there and kind of like agitate for um, uh, kind of like getting getting rid of the kind of precarity that these workers often kind of face because like the precarity comes from like um, in these cases that like these these service workers do like basically work for company X except they don't they work through a vendor who is usually this really thin shell corporation. 
that doesn't even have its own offices that like and, and the, the workers they, they go to company x's office every day or not like the you know the office building every day they spend all their time on that site they're always working directly for and like on behalf of uh you know full-time employees of company x and so on but because they're hired through this shell corporation they're not entitled to any of the benefits or the kind of protections that would usually come along with working for company x right um yeah it's it's purely a way of um uh differentiating the benefits uh that are offered to different workers um, yeah keeping them out of the hr system for for that company <laughs> yeah yeah um and there's there's a point of agitation here that's outlined by the author that like um you know the the, the vendor is ultimately beholden to the company and um you know the, the demands of those full-time employees further up the chain uh, do shape that kind of relationship um so it's possible to like kind of build that like, a, a sort of um solidarity i suppose in dem like if it i suppose if technologists demanded that their cafeteria staff be unionized or you know essentially um or or demanded that they not be overworked or that they not be exploited to the point of uh, you know starvation and so on um that might be a way forward um and plus like also these are these are workers that are closer to areas that have been traditionally unionized um so there's there's opening there um and it's actually happening already as well like at some tech companies um food service workers are already unionizing for instance um which is very promising yeah absolutely um and you know um a lot of the time at least in canada um these uh service workers are working on the basis of like uh like a temporary visa temporary work visa that puts them in like extremely disadvantageous bargaining position with their employer um and so um they can find some allies among more established uh strata of, of the workforce then uh that can help to deal with the sort of like extremely uh, exploitative um, immigration policies uh, that uh, capital uh, manages to get passed into law. Um, and then that kind of benefits everybody, right? Um, even outside of the tech industry. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are widespread possible benefits for this kind of strategy in terms of uh, producing um, a society that is a lot less amenable to um, these kinds of really like fine grained distinctions that capital likes to impose uh, legally in order to uh, like exploit people at different levels um, and to promote divisions among the working class. Yeah, and like I mean, we have the magic word there, society. Like. Um even even if you see yourself as a like relatively privileged sort of member of this um, this class like you still kind of want to live in a society that doesn't resemble robocop right like um there's like even even if there even if you kind of manage to convince yourself that there's no direct benefit to yourself from you know having these this this stratum of workers uh, organized like you ultimately live in a society right like and it's kind of in your best interest for that to be a nice society where you're not yeah well of, uh, and and i know this is a thing that's been like talked about a lot on like uh chapo but like uh 
you know, for a lot of tech workers, I guess there's kind of like this disavowal about the fact that um, their existence is predicated on a whole lot of sweated labor, um, usually people of color, often immigrants. And, you know, it creates a lot of sort of strange psychological uh, complexes <laughs> to, to disavow the basis for your own existence. Um, and uh, I think it would probably be a lot more healthy for uh, people in that position to um, actually work together with the people who support their job uh, and, and support each other. And that would lead to a, a lot less uh, strange kind of ideological formations within <laughs> the tech industry. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I kind of I kind of worry about this, this as well, like getting... So there, there is that sort of all that, that exploitation, but I kind of worry about it getting to a kind of a, a newer form with these kind of newer endeavors like um, like WeWork, this kind of like network of um, kind of shitty offices that are like massively hyped at the moment. But um, I think the, the arrangement there is that like you're, you're renting space at the location and then the location is contracting out to um, you know, cleaning com companies and so on. So, like, the, there's an extra layer of indirection between the kind of right, um, right, right. Because you you are you'd be like possibly a contractor working for a large firm. So then you you are like under uh, one remove from the actual uh, site of capital. Uh, and then you would be entering into a, a, a rental contract with WeWork. Uh, who would then be uh, themselves uh, uh, contracting out to another company uh, to provide the uh, the service work. Um, and I mean, I think that that may pose some issues uh, for organizing. Uh, however, I think that just really speaks again to the need for industry-wide organizing uh, that they they bring up in this article. Uh, because that, like, you, presumably the service workers working for WeWork could still be a part of the same union as the service workers working at the main campus of Amazon or Google or Facebook or mm. whatever, right? Yeah, um, and um, that's kind of reminiscent of, like, say, the film industry um, as it exists, I think, right now, um, that even for short-term gigs and such, you're still kind of in that, like like industry-wide union sort of situation um you have the same protections even if it's just a a quick um a quick one-day job versus like a, a multi-year film project um and that's what we just we need an equivalent right we often think about the film industry and we think about like it being a reasonably well-paying industry right like that it it um provides a a fairly uh, sustainable uh, wage for people, um, and you know that did that wasn't always the case, right? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that is the result of unionization. <laughs> that is the result of a labor struggle, right? Yeah. Uh, there's there is no reason why the vast armies of uh, workers who are employed on uh, movie making uh, have to be paid well. Right, like yeah, like you can say, oh, but they're professionals. It's like, well, yeah, everyone's. I mean, so what? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. 
professionalism is yeah there's it's something that involves skill but it's also something that is is created through a, a long struggle um you know you can say the same thing about nursing right like it's like yeah okay nurses are are paid very well these days uh partially that's because there's so many old people and therefore there's demand for them uh but but also that's because of a long and bitter uh uh labor struggle um and it it <laughs> It's not necessarily the case that all of that demand for nursing services would have gone to nurses, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, could have easily just gone to the pocket of their employers. Mm. Um, yeah, and um, I kind of want to get back to something that came up a little bit earlier, but like um, there is a line in I think it might be this article or, or the next one that like these uh, these tech these tech campuses would look a lot less utopian without this labor, right? That like the the upper stratum does depend on this lower stratum's kind of underpaid labor to make this kind of function like 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 look at the the fucking apple campus right in that new the steve jobs theater imagine how fucking grimy that thing would be if they didn't have the the guatemalan like imported labor doing the cleaning of the windows there to like for for less much less than you'd expect them to be paid right like um yeah i mean this is this is the this is a point that is is going to get to like a, a thing we're going to talk about down the line. But you could say, well, oh, but of course the the, the capitalists would just uh, get robots to do that job. It's like, well, but the reason the only reason they would ever do that is because the cleaning workers organized and demanded a decent salary. Right, because otherwise they're just going to use the cheap labor from <laughs> whatever yeah. country they're importing workers from. Right, like it's, you know, it, it is. Uh, it's it's not like it's not like they just that this kind of picture of a utopia of uh, workers who are all doing very engaging, fulfilling work uh, comes about because the capitalists just decide out of their mind that oh i'm going to create this utopia no it's it's the product of uh of 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 certainly of planning but also of labor struggles right like cuz as it stands yeah you're going to you're not going to design a like million dollar robot to do the landscaping for you you're going to hire somebody to do the landscaping for you right and you're not going to pay them very much <laughs> because you know human beings are the cheapest machines available right <laughs> like <laughs> as the thing that's so often missed in this kind of like automation um debate or or the, i suppose the, the glowing sort of expectations of a kind of uh, automated utopia that will just just emerge naturally is that no like if as long if um human bodies are the cheapest machines you can find and you never have to repair them because when they wear out you just fire them and they go away you know that's like that's what you actually get you know <laughs> well yeah and and like this is like why washing machines took a long time to catch on in the uk because people were like why would i ever buy a washing machine i can just hire a servant to do my laundry right so you know that it wasn't until a change in the social relations that the washing machine actually became a viable technology and that, that is because the workers and people around the workers organized to make that the case. Yeah, definitely. And like, 
the the question of automation is kind of uh, addressed much more in the the third article. But yeah, so in this one, kind of moving on, we've got um, the next sort of category of like contingent workers, which is sort of like contractors. Um, who like present a kind of a bit of a challenge there because like it's really really hard to organize people who are kind of fly by night kind of operatives and they'll be potentially gone in six months or you don't you don't even know who's coming in like um and like yeah there's there's something about this as well I think I think even from from my sort of experience that like um uh, the the author sort of talks about here like the one reason that these contractors are brought on is for like either very specialized kind of roles or for like headcount. But also they're kind of like the way the author puts it is that they're brought in for like, you know, outside perspective on problems. But what I've actually seen firsthand is that they're brought in kind of basically ex explicitly to be able to tell management the same thing that their own workers have been saying for years, but from a depoliticized, you know, in quotes, standpoint. It would be unthinkable for the management to listen to their own workers, but listening to a guy who's costing them uh, $200 an hour is more palatable, right? Like they've, so like if, um, if you have this like squad of techies who are telling you constantly that like the project is going to go off the rails, everything's on fire, and you don't want to hear that from them because it would mean that they were right, that, you know, there was some power in the workers that they were able to actually cogently kind of explain a problem about their workplace. Um, you don't want to hear that, right? What you do is you hire in some guy who comes in and goes, hmm, and looks at it and goes, yeah, shit's on fire. And you're like, oh my God, this guy's a genius. He's this this contractor, you know, money well spent. Um, while the, while the full-time employees fume at how they've been saying the same thing for years and have been ignored. But of course, there's a reason they're being ignored. Um, because to, to admit that the, the worker had any kind of involvement in production would be, um, you know, a grave sin. Um, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, that is certainly the case. And it's there, there certainly can be these kind of uh, oppositional um, roles that are played between uh, full-time employees and contract workers. It's something I've seen on my job when I've been working contract and, uh, you know, doing the gig economy thing. And uh, sometimes there were, I've had moments of uh, sort of solidarity with uh, full-time employees and other times uh, I've been treated as a tool of management. Uh, which is, in a sense, what I was doing, right? It's not really scab labor, but it's something in that neighborhood, right? Yeah, definitely. It's, um, it's adjacent. And it, it, does, uh, it does create uh, animosity amongst workers. Um, and that, I mean, that, that is one of the main reasons why these, <laughs> these arrangements exist, right? That's why management wants to make them happen. Uh, it's divide and conquer, right? There's no accident um, to this, right? Like, this is precisely why this is done. Um, like, and like a, a lot of management or the kind of owners will play dumb on that. We're like, oh, no, we don't, we don't mean that at all. But no, they fucking Yeah, do. then you, like, look in, like, you know, the management guide for dummies, and <laughs> it just says, like, how to manage this, like, one page it just says divided conquer um, <laughs> yeah you know like i feel like that's kind of all they teach you in business school but maybe that's just my perspective uh no i think it's a pretty uh, accurate perspective but there's a, there's a theme here in the, in the in the actual article about like well you know divide and conquer is a is a tactic that's used to keep 
us under control. And, you know, subverting that by actually reaching kind of across the aisles, as it were, and talking to each other is um is a really great way to uh you know uh fuck over management <laughs> um and that becomes clearer in the next examples with like the I, I kind of actually hate the phrasing here but like the division between non-productive employees and productive employees and what, what the author actually means is the division between say admins receptionists sales etc versus like engineers i suppose like the core people who are building the product um and these are these are segregated usually like um they're not usually kept together in the same sort of place or even the same wing of the building um so they have no opportunity to talk yeah i mean you can call them whatever you want but the fact of the matter is is that management recognizes that this is a meaningful distinction and organizes workers accordingly yeah um and the the point of agitation here is to to cross that barrier right like and actually speak to each other and you know express solidarity and to realize that you're actually in the same boat you know that um you've got a, you do have shared interests um you've you've more more like yeah so like if if you know fellow programmers listening to this you have more in common with the sales guy than you do with the ceo right that's very important to realize and I, and i've been on both ends of this division i like in the education sector i've worked both of these jobs um and yeah like I definitely have felt alienated from the other side of this equation in both roles. Like when I was in when I was a support worker in the office, I felt a certain amount of estrangement from the uh, faculty. And when I became faculty, I felt a certain amount of estrangement from the office worker. (laughs) Uh, But that's because of the way the workplace is organized, right? Um, It is people are put into silos. They're given different labels. They eat in different places. They have different office spaces. They have different work schedules. Um, You know, uh, all of these things are created to keep people apart. But honestly, having been in both positions... I mean, you know, in the end, you're both concerned about the same workplace and you're both in a sort of uh, oppositional relationship to capital. Uh, yeah, definitely. And like this is kind of like the, the plan that's outlined at the towards the end of the, the article that starting from the bottom, we organize the lower rungs of the hierarchy while encouraging those further up to uh, offer solidarity downwards and um, I suppose meet in the middle. <laughs> um, or you know, eventually reach the sort of upper rungs. I, I, there's, 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 there's a layer of these organizations that are beyond saving. You know, they've, they've, the, the sort of bourgeois aspirants of the, uh, the, the layers directly below this, the, the C level executives and so on. They'll never be on board for it, but like fuck them. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, they're not, they're not you, your buddy. You can you only, know? you can only build solidarity <laughs> if the people you can build solidarity with. That's you know, this is why like right to work is a terrible idea. Like, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah, it's it's grisly. Um, and again, to kind of like emphasize one sort of last point that like the, what this really calls for is an industrial union, not a like collection of craft unions. Because like having having a programmers union and then having a sales guy union and a cleaning workers union and a uh, cafeteria workers union or whatever isn't going to cut it right. Like you're gonna you're still going to be in silos and not actually recognizing that you're all in the same, literally in the same enterprise together, right? Like that's that's what's going on in your workplace. Um, 
we really need instead an industrial union that like crosses not only like crosses the kind of divides between these different sort of professions within the same context but also the divides between workplaces right like that um or the like between different sort of companies and sites um yeah and i mean this is a kind of a a bit of a digression but um I remember reading an article once uh, from a labor activist in Europe, and he was talking about, uh, so the, the interviewer was asking him, uh, you know, given the European financial crisis that's happening, given all of the uh, austerity measures that governments are rolling out across Europe, uh, why is labor not able to provide a, pan- a pan-European response to this issue um and a lot of what it comes down to is stuff like well our schedules are different from one country to another or um the rollover on our contracts is different from one country to another um and all of these kind of like minor um organizational trivia points do add up to a significant weakness um, in uh, actually being able to present a uh, united front against capital Um, and that that is that is a that is a sort of critical flaw of craft unionism um, that that you can you can really see Um, yeah yeah uh, certainly Um, so yeah I think that's I think I like this article it's got um Really good sort of diagnosis of the kind of like the core sort of problems we're facing and the kind of like good um, prescription for, yeah, a, a united front against capital. Um, yeah, they sort of give some some uh, examples here of why uh, those those, those uh, full-time employees might actually want to, to participate in a, a unionization drive too, right? Like... Um, sort of concerns about the, the ethics of production right like is like so this is stuff like uh you know uh many tech workers not wanting to admit the fact that they work for an advertising company yeah right (laughs) um and like and management deliberately obfuscating that like uh you know this idea that they are working on a quote-unquote campus uh and that this is like a knowledge industry um, and that they are driving forward technical progress and like advancing the productive forces of humanity, and like all these things are heavily emphasized, uh, or like bringing people together and this kind of stuff, right? Like uh, we're we're connecting people, all that kind of thing. But the 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 fact that all of the money for these companies comes from advertising is a a sort of open but dirty secret right yeah there's a huge disconnect between that kind of utopian vision right of um i mean we've we've been over this in the californian ideology and so on but like that that vision of like creating value for users and all this sort of stuff and then actual what actually you're doing is selling ads right or making infrastructure to sell ads um yeah, yeah th- it's there, like there surveillance is... and it's like one end like the one end of the equation is surveillance and the other end of the equation is advertising uh, sales yeah and like as as much as like the kind of programmer tier are not the kind of are not sort of outlined here as being the initial um point of agitation like the kind of like there is this uh, idea of 
kind of agitating from the bottom up. Like there is there is massive dissatisfaction even within um, you know techies as to like their their work, right? Like I think this 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 thing about like oh we 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 want to actually change the world, but now we're we're actually selling ads instead. That's something I think we're all like m- myself, of course, and all of uh, most of my uh, colleagues and like everyone in the industry is actually kind of like intimately familiar with and has internalized as like this being a problem um so it's like it might actually not be that far of a stretch to like agitate around those points and be like well okay if if you actually want to improve the world right like you want to improve people's actual fucking living conditions clearly leaving all of this stuff up to the dictates of um the kind of ownership class isn't good enough right like and it's 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 evidently not worked out so far so now maybe it's time to try something different you know um i think it's you know fertile ground certainly um yeah and this is a this is something that you can you can kind of see a precedent for in like uh the political situation in france in may 68 and then following may 68 to some degree uh up to the election of mitterrand um where you had uh technical workers and uh managers um, to some degree brought on board with the socialist project because of arguments like this, right? Because of like things like autonomy, right? Like, uh, like you know, you're talking about how uh, the bosses decide the, the direction of projects um, and the engineers feel like they could do this themselves, but they feel like, uh, or they, they know, they experience the fact that, that uh, they are all kind of siloed off and given orders and not actually able to do the things that they want to do and that they see right in front of them as potentials, right? Um, and instead, they just have to follow orders. Um, I, I know, like, I, I spend some time uh, working with people in the games industry um, and that is a major stressor and source of complaint in the games industry, right? That like, um, at a certain scale of production, if you're talking about like a, a like a Ubisoft game, like a you know like Far Cry Five or something, like this is something that is rolled out across like multiple gigantic studios across the world, um, and each person working on a part of that game. Um, is really just like, you know, doing widget production, right? Um, and th- this feeling of of um, of mental like uh, of mental exhaustion that comes from that sort of top-down work experience, and the desire for um, an ability to to think about what they are producing as well as think about the content of their work. Um, drives a lot of developers into doing indie development. Um, I've, I've definitely heard that from a lot of developers I talked about or I talked to in, in the indie space uh, who are just like, yeah, I left because I couldn't handle the work culture anymore. Um, but then that is a fraught proposition, right? Because that is an, that is a, an extremely competitive market with very low returns uh, for most people. And... Yeah, you might be good, but are you good enough to, uh, you know, win the lottery on what game happens to get to the front of the Steam, uh, you know, featured page on the right day? Because 
I've met developers who are like absolutely outstanding and make outstanding products and their games just get slept on and it's like financial ruin for them. So I think that in a way, unionization is a, a more attractive proposition for workers like this, especially given the fact that those kinds of um, independent uh, petty bourgeois avenues of um, attempting to realize their, their, their dreams and their desires for fulfilling work are becoming more and more fraught and imperiled. Yeah, yeah, like it's um, as as much as the sort of um, you know professional or programmer tier or whatever you want to call it is is like a relatively pres- relatively privileged position within that that industry and just like a relatively privileged um, class I think in in society in general like there's there still is like it's it's not like it's a kind of it's not like there's an absence of consternation either, like or um, or of problems within within itself, right? Like that, we are we are still alienated from our labor. We're still kind of exploited. Um, still have like that division of uh, planning from execution, which keeps us kind of separate from the uh, the ability to kind of decide the the direction of our products. Um, despite the fact that like in with say uh, at, at the very least with open source work we know for a fact that it is possible to democratically run vast like technological projects um which which kind of is a great segue into the second article which is about um bringing back the lucas plan um the the lucas plan was um so to, to give you the context like in it, there was this company uh lucas aerospace i think um or um let me look them up on Lucas Industries. I think that's the the kind of proper term um, in the UK. And in in the nineteen seventy six, there was this um, thing where the the management decided, well, we have to lay off a bunch of workers. You know, big um, big layoffs. And in response, uh, the workers, like just like, across all parts of the kind of the business, got together and proposed, like, kind of put put forward a counter proposal that would. Um, like retool what the, the 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 firm was doing, and like propose different designs or different technologies that they could build um, as alternatives. Um, and this this was remarkable, like in a kind of like a, a like a positive plan to retain jobs um, and reorient the form the firm towards like socially useful applications of the company's technology and skills. But the, the crucial thing here is it was directed by the workers, like bo- both the like, um, you know, uh, wrench jockeys on the floor and the designers up in the kind of um, the higher levels, all in, 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 in concert with the union representatives and everyone all involved getting this plan together and demonstrating that like actually, you know, like workers can in fact direct production or uh, and design and planning. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it is uh, quite inspiring, and it, it gets back to uh, the previous discussion we had about alternative forms of ownership, where in that document, it was somewhat nebulous, like how worker ownership would actually make any difference socially, <laughs> right? Like, it's like, okay, well, I can kind of see like they would get some more returns from being the owners, but, you know, in what... Um, sort of uh, qualitative sense, would that make a real difference for society? And you can kind of see in the example of the Lucas plan that like, no, like if, if workers are 
actually able to manage production and direct production, um, they can move the direction of technology uh, and technolo technological development uh, into a more pro-social uh, direction, right? So like, you know, if you're talking about the aerospace industry, obviously you're, you're talking about potentially uh, arms production, right? Um, and, you know, moving away from that and towards something that is, is more helpful for society in general um, is, you know, really inspiring, mm. right? It is, yeah, certainly. And, like, the um, the kind of the analogy that's kind of used to kind of bring this over into, like, uh, contemporary technology circles is that, like, um, right now we're kind of seeing, like, a pretty serious backlash uh, against, like, the kinds of the kinds of purposes that technology has been directed towards recently, like this surveillance, um, just the kind of abject shittiness of like what these, um, you know, social uh, technology uh, or the social um, networks um, have kind of created. And we're, you know, we're seeing serious widespread sort of criticism. And like the, the question has got to be kind of raised. Well, like could, could all this kind of creative and technical energy not be directed towards something more humane, and something that would actually have positive effects on uh, on society, um, and it can because like technology is political and its design is political. Um, the current design is carried out by capitalists for capitalists. It's not in the service of humanity at large. It is in the service of profit, specifically like just the the extraction of um, value from these systems and 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 its hoarding and accumulation. Um, and you know, like it's it's that can be different. Like there's there's no there's no concrete there's, there's there's nothing inscribed in the fabric of the universe that says that the direction of socio-technical development must be um, dictated by this small class of owners, right? Um, it is entirely possible that we could, uh, you know, sort of dare I say it, collectively and direct the um, direct the process as workers, as the Lucas um, workers tried to do. And I mean, like ultimately, there the initiative failed. Like, I mean, that it'd be a different history if it had worked. But um, it's inspiring. It really is. Um, yeah, and even at the time, it was recognized as inspiring. It was it was given sort of a global headlines, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. In it's, terms of um, like, wow, they're doing this really incredible thing. Uh, uh, it's just you know, it was of course the managers didn't particularly like it. Uh, managers going to manage. <laughs> they conspired right? <laughs> to destroy yeah. uh, the plan, but uh, yeah. Hey, that's why you need uh, solidarity beyond just one plant. Right. right, yeah. Um, there's, there's a great line, uh, there's a quote here from a New Statesman um, that the, the philosophical and technical implications of the plan are now being discussed on average 25 times a week in international media. Like this is, it was, it was big stuff at the time, um, huge. And, um, you know, it, it briefly opened up this kind of space of possibility. Um, but yeah, like it's, so the, the, the author moves on to this kind of question of like how... How do you do something like that today um, with, you know, the, the kind of technical sort of industries as, as we know them today? Um, and, yeah, it's like it's, it's again kind of this like class composition thing or the, the, the composition of the workforce, like what we saw in the, the previous article, that like um, there are these divisions within, uh, you know, technology industry um, between these like masses of un underpaid workers who are kind of like 
or even even beyond the sort of example of um, cleaning the offices, like we're talking about the, the moderation teams, right, for, for Facebook and so on. Um, electronics assembly, the, the, the people who are constantly fucking forgotten, like the, 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 the Taiwanese kids who are like putting the fucking laptops together um, or like mining the, min- or get, you know, getting the minerals to put the laptops together and all that sort of stuff, right? Like that's all dependent labor. Um, or even like the warehouse logistics stuff, like we're all familiar with the, um, the ghastly fucking conditions that Amazon uh, warehouse workers have to have to live with. Um, yeah, it's it's like, uh, you know, uh, something we don't want to think about, but mm, it's real. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, then, uh, and then again, yeah. we've got the kind of like the higher stratum kind of getting towards a petty bourgeois kind of um, character there. Um, and like the, the author also points out here, like I think it's it's stuff we've sort of been discussing, but like that the that stratum also has its own grievances and like stuff like um, yeah the, the lack of autonomy and the kind of crushing overtime in many cases leading to burnout um, and so on. But yeah, and I suppose it's sort of again a, a call for and you know uh, industry wide sort of action like and 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 organization that like getting. Get, like the thing about the Lucas plan again was that it wasn't just the designers up in the um, up in the kind of uh, draft rooms that were pr- putting forward this plan. It involved everyone, including them and the shop floor workers, and like every every worker in between uh, was involved. So, like I think the analogy here is that like simply setting up like a programmers union isn't going to isn't going to work, right? Like it's just going to end up being. A union for programmers. It's not going to be a tech union, you know, in, in quotes. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and I think it's also very important to uh, the socialist project in general because um, what we saw in, for example, in uh, Chile, and this is a thing we will probably talk about if we uh, get to covering cybernetic revolutionaries, um, is that because uh, the technical workers and uh, managers uh, were not uh, brought up in this kind of uh, program or this kind of uh, movement. They did not have a, a mentality of uh, solidarity with the other workers or the um, disposition to treat them as, as equals and as intelligent human beings. Um, they often... Uh, tried to find ways to sabotage uh, directives that were coming down from on high in order to do more sort of de- democratic production, right? Like the, the government was was saying, do this kind of stuff, but there was resistance at the level of the workplace because the culture did not exist to actually um, realize that kind of uh, dream, you know? Uh, it, it's not like... Uh, you know, it's not like you work in this place um, and you're completely hived off from the other sector of workers there and you only uh, relate to each other in the most perfunctory ways. And then the government says, oh, now you're going to all be comrades and you're all going to work together and struggle. Uh, and it just instantly happens, right? It's it's much more likely to be successful. That kind of program is be likely to be successful, uh, not just through propagandizing or for directives, but also um, through you know the development of workplaces where this sort of culture is actually developed and 
um, there is a real sense of solidarity and mutual respect and recognition among workers. Yeah, yeah. And like the, 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 the watchword here or the, the watchphrase is workplace control, right? Like workplaces by the workers for the workers. Um, and that, that includes everyone, right? From the, the, the apprentice floor cleaner all the way up to the guys who are running the, um, the you know, artificial intelligence pipelines. Um, all together in a firm, like an enterprise, like trying to achieve a goal, right? Like it's, um, there really has to be that, that cross-cutting solidarity um, for everyone. Um, and the, the the article closes out with a quite a, quite a nice uh, bit about um, kind of like bees and architects. And it's a, it's a quote from uh, Mike Cooley, who was one of the authors of the Lucas Plan. Um, I'll, I'll just read out the, the, the quote. Um, the alternatives are stark. Either we will have a future in which human beings are reduced to a sort of bee-like behavior, reacting to the systems and equipment specified for them. Or we will have a future in which the masses of people, conscious of their skills and abilities in both a political and technical sense, decide that they are going to be the architects of a new form of technological development, which will enhance human creativity and mean more freedom of choice and expression rather than less. The truth is, we shall have to make the profound decision as to whether we intend to act as architects or behave like bees. Which I think is pretty good, you know? That is, like, that's exactly how I feel, right? Like, um, I would strongly, strongly prefer we have a, you know, planet of architects rather than bees. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I remember, you know, I remember talking to Andrew Feenberg, um, who's a philosopher of technology, and has written a lot about this kind of subject. And I remember him saying that he kind of came away from the May 68 protests in France with that sort of idea in his head. Like, you know, like we, you know, we really gotta, we really gotta work on this. This is really, really important um, to, to, to change our relationship to technology and to each other. Um, this is a pressing matter for our time. And, it's been a long time since 1968, and there's been a lot of efforts to do that, right? There's a lot of talk uh, among the, the tech industry, uh, among government, about creativity and initiative and entrepreneurship and all that kind of stuff, but really building you know, technological projects that are based on wide-ranging solidarity and recognition is is something that we still have yet to to really achieve i think mm, yeah absolutely um it feels like we're kind of getting well we're not getting there but the seeds are being planted right like that we're already seeing um technology uh, unions or like sort of organizations that are trying to unionize the tech from the ground up and so on starting to get traction um, and it all it all kind of feels like a powder keg in a way that like because we see we see tensions at every level right like um, we see you know tensions within the kind of um, the, the substrate of, of workers whose you know work the the higher levels depend on we're seeing the kind of consternation even within that kind of upper layer as well as to like the nature of the work they're carrying out we're seeing um backlash from society at large as to like well what the why the fuck are these huge companies off the leash entirely to kind of do this kind of shit um yeah it's become yeah. clear that we don't in fact have a you know uh th th that kind of that kind of vision of a technical 
utopia that would generally improve all human lives just not it's not fucking happening right now right like and if if we still want it then there's there's work to be done um yeah yeah it it just doing your job and working hard and expecting that that's going to produce the vision that you want to see uh realized in the world uh it's not going to work right you gotta we got to do something different um, I know, like, <laughs> we're both, like, you know, we're both workers. We both uh, have to deal with the realities of the workplace. Um, I understand how difficult it is to try to break the mold, to try to do something that is not on script. Uh, but that's the only way we're going to make this happen it's not working harder doing the same thing that just does not work it does not produce change uh yeah it really and truly doesn't um uh yeah so the next uh, article is called the future of work automation and the left um and as you can probably tell from the title there's a there's a lot to be said in here about automation um and like it's kind of opens with this thing that like it, it is it is the one of the big buzzwords of the century right like it's it's on everyone's um on everyone's lips um and the the, the threats are all very obvious right like i think that that gets plenty of airtime the, th- the the threat of like displacement and and uh, and loss of loss of jobs and kind of like widening um inequality and so on but there there is there is also opportunity there right that like um we, we at one point in the past dreamed of like post-work societies and or even just like a reduction in the amount of fucking toil that we do uh, every week. Um, and this this auto this wave of automation does offer us some kind of um, possibility of, of actually getting there. Yeah, which I think is it's, I think it's, I think it's quite a quite a nice article in the, the way it lays this out. Our society is organized around work, right? Like, it, that's kind of one of the opening points, is that, like, every goddamn thing we do is built around this institution of work. But, like, so much of it is either horrendous or just bullshit, right? Like, it's... it's Or both, right? Like, where it's, like, we're, we're all, as I mean, in Marx's terms, all kind of alienated from from our labor but then a lot of it is just fucking pointless anyway you know it's like not actually useful sort of work but we're still fucking doing it well and, and the thing that the marx appreciated about the capitalist mode of production um as opposed to previous modes of production in this regard was that in capitalism society is transparently oriented towards work right like we yes the work may be garbage we may be alienated but at least we know that the basis of our existence is work and that is something that capitalism makes clear in a way that other modes of production do not right um like if you if you were talking about feudalism you know people people get caught up in ritual or they uh they think about you know the religious basis of their existence the their soul you know all these kinds of things uh but in capitalism we relate to our labor as the 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 fundament the the basic structure of our society and our lives um and we also experience our capacity for doing different kinds of labor because we're not in a a pure caste system where uh, we are stuck doing one job uh, for our whole lives, and that's just what we do. And the, 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 the rigid structure of society that dictates that we do that job um, becomes more significant than the fact that we are doing it, right? And so in capitalism, 
you have that that ability to move from one job to another and you see that you are you know pretty much fundamentally related to your capacity to work um and yeah it's not great but at least we can recognize the problems there um yeah, yeah. um and it like yeah it, it's it's just it the thing here is that it, it's just structures fucking everything it, it even it structures how we conceptualize everything like and it, the things that people study right like the the things that you know we'd go to university for are all conceptualized in terms of like useless degrees and like versus stem or whatever uh, yeah yeah i mean i know <laughs> like i do i do vocational education right yeah. like 90% of what I teach is vocational. It is English for the sole purpose of getting a job. Um, and and there is, there's, there's the, the, the way the course is structured, there is no broader meaning to it whatsoever. It's just a thing you do in order to get a better job. And you know, maybe some students come into it with uh, a different motivation and can get something else out of it. But um, most students are brought into the the course because of government directives because of advertising uh because of you know the 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 structure of of the way the economy is laid out um looking for that vocational education and i mean that's okay in a sense but i find that it ultimately does get in the way of even providing the vocational education that they supposedly want right because <laughs> you're a lot less likely to successfully learn english if the point of what you're learning is radically isolated from your entire life and what you care about um and 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 this kind of move towards vocational education and like so you know education that is focused purely on the job hunt um and and on on job related abilities um, I think is like extremely uh, deadening and demotivating uh, for most uh, teachers and students. And like what you know, one thing that's kind of like been bothering me a lot, like recently, I've I've been thinking about why are people like so attracted to to like Jordan Peterson's work, right? Like you know, it's like you know this huge best-selling stuff, right? And like part partially, I think it's it's the controversy he cultivates, but that doesn't really explain it, right? Like that. That doesn't get you to the top of the bestseller lists, right? Like, that, I mean, there's plenty of people who are just like, you know, hacks who go around and cultivate controversy. Um, and I, I think it's it's partially the fact that he's just gesturing to the idea of education or um, a life of the mind that is not purely instrumental and focused on focused on moving up the job escalator, right? Getting the qualifications you need to move on to the next stage. I think that our society has become so focused on that, it basically leaves people feeling like their the content or their, their, their everyday lives are completely meaningless. Um, and except to the extent that it advances them up the next stage. And then when they get to the top of the escalator, there's nothing there, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think that, you know, when Peterson's talking about like these like really deep structures of meaning that go back centuries and so and so on, and we have to read these great books and all this kind of stuff, at least he's talking about something other than, you know, what is the new hot CSS framework, mm. right? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah it's like... Or, you know, uh, how can you improve your test score on your English test or whatever it is, you know, right? Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I buy it. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good analysis. Um, yeah. And like, I think the, the author kind of sums this up pretty well, I think, in kind of saying that like we don't, we don't work because it's necessary or because it produces things of value or because it enriches us. We work because our economy is structured in such a way that for most of us, the choice is either work or starvation like that. Mm-hmm. That is the thing that structures all of that. And like, yeah, that's the the thing that, that um, you know, Peterson is just gesturing towards there, the possibility of like a, you know, possibilities beyond that, you know, the, the simple choice between working and dying, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Like it, might, it might in fact be fun to read a book for fun. Um or for some some enrichment of the mind, right? Like, like but this this thing has taken over everything. Yeah, that, that, that's the that's the thing that he's pointing to is like that there is such a thing as enrichment of the mind, right? It's not just a matter of like a brave new world style uh, ingesting of uh, pleasure stimulus, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, <laughs> God, how fucking depressing is it that like that 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 guy is the only person in the kind of public sphere that's doing that. And he's such a fucking right wing dipshit. Like it's, I mean, I think politically it's, it's disastrous because he is, he's drawing people into some pretty toxic politics with, um, with, with a line, uh, and a performance that is addressing some really legitimate issues. Yeah. Um, but like the author then kind of gets on to like kind of getting at like why this is the case. Like we, we've established that this this damn thing fucking structures everything, and it like I think observably doesn't actually produce that much in the way of like value, or it, it like doesn't produce as much value as it thinks it produces. But the reason for this is that like when when one percent of the population controls most of the disposable wealth, what we call the market reflects what they think is useful or important, and the ruling class like has figured out that actually no like happy and productive uh, people and workers is actually a really dangerous thing, right? That's kind of what the author is saying here, that, like, there's a reason for this, and it's a it's, it's class struggle, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the magic yeah, word yeah. is class struggle. Um, that was great. Um, it's really sort of a nice, nice and clear it, this, way of This it. gets back to the, the, the Graeber article that mm-hmm. we read, right? Like I think he's, the, I think he's uh, actually quoting Graeber here. Or uh, the, right, the right. That's, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Directly quoted Graeber, yeah. Our good old uh, friend It's from Graeber. a different, different Graeber book, but, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and like there's actually there's actually a great there's a great line here as well from the author that like if hard work is its own reward, like this you you buy if you buy this this idea from the the ruling class, if hard work is its own reward, then why are why are we working harder than ever and miserable about it? Like this this clearly doesn't work, right? Um, but you know, like automation does offer a sort of a way out of here, right? Like that. Um, we could, you know, do the the fully automated luxury communism thing, <laughs> and uh, end up in a delicious sort of um, Star Trek style post work uh, utopia. Like it's it's a direction we could try and go because like there is a history of like socialists specifically like wanting to reduce the work week. I mean, the only reason we don't work seven days a fucking week right now is because socialists agitated for that in the past. Um, and even non-socialists, right, like um, Keynes and such, like were, were of the same sort of persuasion at one point. Um, th- there's no reason we couldn't be of the same persuasion today. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting that like we've got so caught up in consumerism. It's 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 like they talk about in this article here. The combination that we face today is 
19th century Protestant moralizing plus consumerism plus the ideology of quote-unquote self-fulfillment. And that sort of triad has led to us prioritizing, uh, and I, I don't think this is the only reason, but it has led to us prioritizing income over free time. And, you know, another reason why we might prioritize income over free time is because we are all in a mutually antagonistic relationship as consumers. And, uh, and we are we're all terrified about the, the starvation that they talk about at the beginning of the article. But, I, you know, I think that that, that kind of uh, push push stimulus uh, is accompanied by this this pull stimulus. Uh, there was a really good um, video essay I saw on the recent uh, Apple Home uh pro, uh ad that was that was rolled out that was it like spike jones uh uh did this uh, really slick advertisement for uh for apple home uh which is about you know this woman basically experiencing the hellish grind of of commuting um and then coming home uh and like being transported into this incredible wonderland of self-fulfillment by way of her apple home device right um and just like really wild cinematic cinematographic uh techniques used to portray this idea and to make it convincing um and you know this is the guy who did uh, her right so it's it's he's he's very plugged into and, and 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 knowledgeable about this kind of subject uh and yeah i mean i think it's a real thing like we we do we do try to construct this self-image by way of our purchases um and i do think it it distracts from the the struggle to to reduce our work time um yeah and so we we we, we have to think about that as much as we have to think about um appropriating the social product right um they're both necessary yeah like this is um this is such a kind of multi-dimensional sort of project right like um that like the the, the core the core demand here is uh, and i think it's it's kind of put very well in in the article by a, a quote from uh, aaron bastani um that like you know, f full automation of everything and common ownership of everything that is automated is the core demand, right? Like we're 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 after a transformation of the very core relations of the society, also transformation of how we relate to wealth and transformation of all these other things. Like it's there's a kind of a lot there's a lot like that needs to change, and it's a it's a it needs to be a multi pronged kind of uh, kind of movement. And I think that it's it's important because like the the one of the things that's raised here in the article is um, again like um, universal basic income as a potential way to do this or like reducing the work week and such, and I'm kind of I'm kind of worried about like um, getting too hung up on these individual sort of reforms, right? Like because I think universal basic income on its own is actually kind of like it's a very e it would be very easy for the idea to simply be hijacked by capital or like again yeah in the same way that welfare was right yeah right. exactly or like the um reducing the work week of course you can reduce the work week you're you know your hours are cut in half and your salary is too Ooh, you know you you want you want more free time right so i think i think all of these all of these 
um, reforms and these solutions need to constantly be rooted in the kind of like fundamental transformation of relations that like because it and the same goes for the universal basic income right that like like we we, we said this in the, the 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 green room but like who wants to put down a bet that like the the gigantic mass of proles in the Blade Runner films they get a basic income consisting of you know, those parcels of maggot sludge that they eat. And I I mean, that's literally what it meant to be a prole in Roman times, (laughs) right? Was that you got a universal basic income of bread from the state. That that was like, that was what defined being a prole, was you got your bread from the state and you you subsisted off of that. Uh, And it, you know, that's, that's not great. <laughs> really, it really isn't. Yeah. So like, I'm, I'm a little bit sort of wary of just like having talking about universal basic income in a vacuum. Essentially, that like it, I, I think it absolutely needs to be rooted in this like deeper vision. Uh, and it, it is stuff that's that's gotten to in the article. Like, I'm not I'm not saying that this is a especially especially a blind spot for the author, but that like. Um, I think we're at, we're at great risk of kind of going down blind alleys there of like proposing. I think I think like maybe it's partially that like as leftists over the last four decades or whatever um, or three decades however long it's been, um, we've gotten kind of accustomed to you know hiding our light under a bushel as it were that like not really saying the core demand like the the actual transformation we want to see but instead proposing these you know like minor sort of reforms as like oh well you know if if we if we do this thing then it would be a step towards this this sort of thing and. I'm, Without getting into the whole, like, radical versus reform sort of stuff, um, like, I think it does need to be rooted in an actual kind of, like, core goal that we won't let go of. That, like, we need to constantly reaffirm that common control of the means of production is exactly what we're after. And that UBI or whatever might be a path towards it, but we're not going to give up on that actual goal. Um yeah, because at the point that yeah, it, it's it's a matter of not putting the cart before the horse, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> to, to put it very simply, yeah. Uh, if you put the reform, the p- reforms, the particular reforms uh, before the political project, then you're just going to end up with that that bare subsistence level of basic income that libertarians dream of. Yeah, that, that's that's already on our fucking doorstep, right? Like the libertarians, the, those psychopaths have already taken this up as their their fucking banner, right? Like it's in in a way in a way already been lost that way. Yeah, and and you know, it's it's pretty easy to see the way this can happen when you look at something like the way that uh, welfare programs uh, directly subsidize the labor costs of Walmart, right? Where the Walmart trainers. Uh, when they bring workers in to the company, give a uh, lecture um, on how to apply for welfare payments because this is an expected subsidy to the wage that Walmart pays, right? Um, and that you know that's that's a scenario that's very easy to imagine. If everybody's getting universal basic income, they just go, well, okay, well, you know, we'll just reduce the wages accordingly. And then, you know, there's also the question of where do the taxes come from that pay for these? Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, um. That's a major, major issue. And if it isn't not coming from 
the rich, then it's coming from the middle class and or at least it's coming from, you know, the upper stratum of workers who are going to be slaving away, supporting the lower stratum while all the profits go to the top uh, capitalist stratum. Well, it's, it's, it's almost as if the correct answer is a total reorientation of, like, the very notion of the possession of wealth within the society, right? Like, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's very yeah. much the correct answer. Um, but I think, I think we've gotten off on a bit of a digression there. But, like, I think is, it is an important sort of point that, like, it's just a thing I go off on every time universal basic income is brought up that, um, yeah, it needs to be coupled to this other stuff. Um, well, it's because you run into people who are um, social reformers um, and they're, they, they become incredibly fixated on specific reform measures. So I, I feel like a lot of this, this sort of uh, going off thing is kind of a reaction to uh, the enthusiasm of uh, some people for uh, specific reforms. Um, the silver bullet approach, right? Um, th- right. I mean, is, it's, uh, it's, it's in keeping with our sort of um, current, uh, you know, hegemonic thinking of like, um, you know, marginal tweaks around the edges, right? Like if we just find the right dial and turn it three degrees to the left, we'll, oh, it'll, it'll all figure out, right? And it is kind of like the twisted legacy that we've inherited from the sorts of uh, reform experimentation that we saw in uh, Markets in the Name of Socialism discussion, right? That like that that is like an aspect of neoliberalism that has come down to us where it's like, oh, you know, this enthusiasm for reform measures and the tweaking and the, the pulling and pushing of, of pulleys and levers and you know, adjusting the machine, but like not in a, a, a fundamental way, because, you know, that's the part that got lost. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's um, I've just been reminded of kind of another uh, sort of like bit of the article that I'm quite fond of, where um, the author sort of points out that there's actually quite a bit of tension even within the left about these sort of uh, reforms, these universal basic income and so on, or, or the attention between the kind of um, fully automated luxury gay space communism crowd and the kind of more traditional sort of worker oriented um left and like or that then like the, the kind of insistence there is that well instead of kind of thinking about this full automation we should instead kind of agitate for better working conditions and shorter shorter hours and that sort of stuff which is well like we should yeah absolutely um mm-hmm. it's the, the the yeah the the trouble with that issue or the the trouble with that approach which uh, you know, the author points out is that you can't guarantee that the workplaces which you improve will even be there in the future, right? So if you, if you are if you're improving it on a purely workplace by workplace level, uh, you're not really guaranteeing that workers continue to have access to the the general social benefits, right? The general social product. Um, so that the, I mean that is a valid concern, but I can see where both sides are coming at this, right? Yeah, and I think like uh, it specifically reminded me of um, the kind of arguments put forth by the kind of like communizers or the kind of like ultra left sort of guys that like um, that there's there's this sort of thing that like if if the working class wants to eventually abolish itself, then getting kind of bogged down in last century's worker movements maybe isn't the way to do that. But I also do see the immediate sort of thing of, well, like our, our actual working conditions right now fucking suck. So um, we kind of do actually need to pay attention to that as well. So like it's um, I don't I don't really I don't really have a side in that kind of thing. It's just like it's a very interesting kind of tension that we'll have to deal with. 
Um, yeah, and I, I feel like it is it's something that is a, is like a matter of strategy that um, I just don't feel uh, really informed enough to to talk to to give a very uh, clear statement on because I find a lot of these issues you can kind of talk about them in the abstract like this um, if you are uh, at a distance, but once you actually get involved in organizing. Um, you do start to get a, a clearer position on them uh, because of what you see and what you experience and what you perceive to be working and not working. Um, and I think this kind of like you know uh, detached perspective we have because uh, you know like neither of us are active labor organizers. Um, it, it it does lead us to it does lead us to this kind of uh, sitting on the fence position right because in in the abstract there is an argument to be made for both of these things um and i think that's kind of the best we can say about it <laughs> yeah um yeah i'm gonna have to get into this uh, this organizing work uh, so maybe i should just quit quit the main job and, and do that um no that, that that is something that plays on my mind right that like um there's a very we 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 have a desperate sort of need for both like fresh ideas for this century and to actually crack on with the work of organizing. And it's, like, really hard to find, like, time and energy to do both, right? Like, um, pl and, and, but this, this ties back in with what we're actually discussing in this very episode, that, like, I mean, if I, was to organ if I was to start organizing any kind of a workplace, it would be my own, right? Like, the, the workplace of a technology company. And that's, that's very much the open question that's in this, um, this set of articles. Like, this, this, is a, this is a new field of endeavor because... Um, we, we haven't been organizing these workplaces for, for like fucking how long, you know? Um, we've got um, entire like cohorts of these kind of like knowledge workers and, and technologists and stuff who have like gone through university, gone into their like early jobs and then grown to become senior engineers or what, what have you, who have done all of that in conditions of never having been organized at all. Like there's a deeply embedded culture of just like the opposite of organization um yeah big big challenges ahead but like you know we we kind of have to have to meet them um yeah yeah and i guess that's kind of where we come to is like hmm this is both necessary and extremely difficult okay <laughs> but i think you know the, the 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 thing that is that does work to our favor is that um when you actually work on these things with other people the, the, the sense of solidarity you get and the experiences you have in your praxis, they do help to fuel the movement, right? Um, what, what appeared to be daunting to the point of impossible can become something you, that can actually be realized, right? And, you know, that's, that's like you can imagine the people involved in the Lucas plan, right? Like the fact that they even made it as far as they did was probably at an earlier point in their life, something they never would have even conceived of. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like, I mean, we have to, we have to get reaccustomed to this idea that things can change and. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I feel like the tech sector has changed so much in the last just three years, you know, like what we consider to be possible in this situation. Uh, it's, it's, it's hugely different. Um, and it's not just some dispensation from God. This is something that people have, done collectively um 
Yeah, the fact that there even was a labor panel at GDC this year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, what a normal <laughs> Like, who would have thought that would ever happen, right? That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, and like I've, I've been I've been saying it this episode, but like I think I think it would it really is a tinderbox that's kind of like on the edge of just going off. Um, or I mean, hopefully, uh, it could be a. I mean, hopefully, I don't find myself fifty years from now thinking back on this this like um, time of um, of optimism, but uh, as 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 a as a failure. But like no, I mean, like it really really seems like this is um, this is starting to happen, right? Like. Um, I mean, even even in this article, the author gives examples of like um, the UK's Green Party are kind of pushing for a four day work week. I mean, they're not, they're not a huge party, but they are, and like uh, they're they're doing that. And like even you know, the other ones, Labour, um, put kind of really talking openly about basic income, and like I think actually probably more interestingly, basic services, um, and like uh, services that are simply free at the point of use, um, which I think we should maybe schedule an episode about this sort of thing but i think is maybe a better avenue of um investigation than a basic income might be um because you get into the decommodification stuff then which is uh yes yes part yes. of these changing fundamental relations in the society um and like france is kind of i think instating a 35 hour week and so on there's a bunch of countries that, that, are that that's been around for quite some time now oh, has it? since right. the 90s uh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it has its own contradictions and issues, but it is it is something that has persevered. I don't know how long it will survive under Macron, but uh, <laughs> hey, at least there's people out in the streets fighting that bastard. Yeah. Um, like he's got to um, he's got to run the country like a startup, right? You should be doing 70 hour weeks and grind oh, and overtime man. and all this shit, right? Like, oh, no. Yeah, um, <laughs> but there's. Um, I think we we skipped ahead a little bit actually. That there's there's a good sort of bit here about like um, kind of what what does come next with these kind of like shift into a post work sort of future and like kind of like uh, you know we can do things that matter to us like you know care for each other and you know spend time like th th there's also bits about like the reimagining of the city and our living situations as possible as possibilities when we break the vice grip of work on our lives we can re we can reimagine what it means to actually kind of live together um and we have to reimagine the city because we're living in a age where amazon is a reality and is utterly destroying the uh commercial fabric of cities right like that like the city must be reimagined like you know they call back to uh red vienna as an example of like this socialist project to reimagine uh living circumstances and this is this is a, something i've studied quite a bit in uh my doctoral uh studies uh and you know part of the reason why there was that period of um, innovation in housing was because there were tremendous social changes going on and there was a need for new arrangements. And I think we live in a similar period today, right? They're, they're, the, the face of the city is changing. Uh, the face of our, our productive and uh, consumptive relationships with one another is changing um and that does create an opportunity to reorganize the city but uh unless we have uh social power uh, that will be done on the basis of capital not on yeah. the basis of what we want 
Right, exactly, and that's that's how you get Blade Runner. <laughs> not a not a desirable thing. Um, yeah, and that's that 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 really is the core of it, right? That like our our current trajectory is uh, like we're we're in a society that is organized by capital for capital, and we we want to change that, like to a society that is by humans for humans, you know, like by labor for labor. And like the, the conclusion of this article is that like like automation isn't like something that's coming or like the, the or even even like widening the scope from automation like these these changes and these like changes to our societies and our living environments they're not on the way they are here they're happening now and we we on the left have absolutely got to wrestle with this like and to deal with it because it's not going to go away we can we can sort of like I think I think there are some on the left who would prefer to kind of like um, you know close their eyes and click their heels together and wish themselves back to 1914, but it ain't fucking happening, right? Like <laughs> um, the, the the choice we have is to is to alter the, tra- the trajectory we're on and switch to another one where everyone can enjoy the fruits of this automated labor. Um, and you know, actually live in a nice world. I mean, that's shouldn't shouldn't be that crazy of a desire, really, should it? <laughs> no, um, no, no. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think we're gonna have to talk about surrounding topics more uh, in the future because um, we've done this kind of broad overview uh, with these these articles, um, and and it'll be worth talking about some of these issues at, at more length uh, yeah. as we go along. Um, I think one that we've kind of got in the pipe and for an indeterminate time in the future is um, that both in this set of articles and in the the labor paper we looked at, the kind of notion of a kind of left-wing accelerationism has come up in both places. And I think we sh- we'll, we'll probably take a look at that. Um, maybe like like specifically the left flavor of accelerationism and also just kind of acceleration in general, like kind of where that where those notions come from. Um, cause it's, you know, it's a recurring theme and, um, it seems to be like, I, th- I think it's, I think again, I think I'm, I don't think I actually quite got to verbalize it in the, uh, alternatives episode, but the fact that like, you know, the other party in the UK is kind of like actually putting basically left accelerationism in their, their writings is significant, right? Like that has to be something that's acknowledged as actually quite significant. That like so, whichever way it turns out, I think it, it warrants investigation. Certainly. No, cool. Um, I enjoyed these three articles immensely, um, and the rest of the I, I read some of the other ones. So there's there's like fifteen or something of them. So, and I've been quite busy in the last couple of weeks, so I haven't gotten around to all of them. But like, it, this is good writing, and I would strongly encourage anyone to check out this um, this website. And yeah, I, I need to get around to reading their first issue, the the first set of articles as well, mm, um, because mm-hmm. th- this this supposedly is a, a, a sort of a follow on in theme from from that set. Um, but oh, great work um, from whoever it was that was involved. <laughs> didn't didn't have quite enough to t- time to look that up, but um, <laughs> yeah, uh, um, yes. Yeah, so please please refer to their website for uh, yeah, the citations. <laughs> just, just go look at the. T- Go look at the thing. Um, Who is the class inquiry group? Yeah. You can find out. <laughs> um, yeah, cool. Is there anything else we'd like to cover before we wrap up? Uh, no, I I don't think so. Um, you know, there was a minor point about uh, this this final article here, sort of overly uh, pushing the idea that. Of course, capitalists invest in automation, in, in, in automation, right? Like, 
you know, like, of course they do, but, like, you know, we know that's not the case, right? Like, it, it's not automatic that capitalism invests in automation. We read that entire Graeber article about the, you know, flying cars and the falling rate of profit about why that isn't the case, right? Um, and and uh, so, you know, it's kind of getting back to that idea that if we want to have uh, serious technical progress, we have to push it as workers because capitalists are pretty much happy just sweating labor, you know? Like, as we talked about earlier in the episode, if you are a landscaper and you do your job for below minimum wage or barely minimum wage, uh, capitalists aren't really going to invent a robot to replace you, right? <laughs> no, because it's you're, you're so cheap, right? Like, and when you're... When your hand gets caught in a fucking weed whacker, uh, they just lay you off. It's like, oh, you're a contractor, get fucked. Um, yeah, like, so <laughs> cheapest cheapest machines in the world, and you don't don't even have to repair them. Um, yeah, and, and I I think that that um, that point was sort of overemphasized by this state of automation uh, article, right? Uh, so that was the one minor corrective I sort of wanted to bring up regarding that article. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and like uh, we 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 did an episode on that um, that article we mentioned. Um, any of y'all latecomers <laughs> to the show need to need to go back and listen to that. Um, yeah, thanks, listeners, for coming along with us on this one. Um, if you've been enjoying the show, maybe consider heading on over to Patreon.com/slash/GeneralIntellectUnit and throwing us a few bucks a month. Um, any little bit of help just helps us to you know pay for books, uh, feed ourselves, you know basic maintenance of the uh, the organism <laughs> um, and yeah and otherwise you can find us on twitter at gi unit pod we're on facebook as general intellect unit and um we're on all the podcasting apps so if you haven't done so already maybe think about subscribing and if there is a facility to do so maybe leave a review or something i don't think anyone's ever done that yet there's no reviews on itunes mm. for us so yeah you can be the first. first yeah yeah trailblazing <laughs> um yeah, um, I think that's about it. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks. See you.